0: Our reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 22 verses 1 to 19. After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba.
1: Well, thank you all very much. And please do keep that passage open uh, on page 16 of the Church Bibles if you've already closed. Um, And it is an astonishing passage. The the passage we've just read is one of the most famous and remarkable passages in the Bible. This story, that the near sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham at God's request... It's led to countless works of art and retellings and questions among many cultures and religions. This morning we have the privilege of looking, uh, kind of taking a closer look at it together. And it is worth a closer look. Because I think at first sight the modern reaction to this might well be one of shock and horror. To feel that this is a harrowing story. So for example, listen to Richard Dawkins' who includes this passage on his charge sheet for reasons the God of the Old Testament can't be trusted. I'll quote from him. God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put firewood upon it, and trussed Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking, after all tempting Abraham and testing his faith. Professor Dawkins goes on and says this, By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. Now, there are many things that a Christian might say when responding to Richard Dawkins. We might say, if God doesn't exist, why are you so angry with him? We might say, more importantly, actually, if God doesn't exist, where are you getting your moral absolutes from? So from where are you borrowing the moral values that you're using to beat God with as a stick? Where's that confident moral indignation coming from if it's just a case of stuff happens, selfish genes doing their thing, just matter, chance and time. But actually, even if you might not be raging like Richard Dawkins at Genesis 22, I think lots of us may have found it an uncomfortable read. Like, How can God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? How can Abraham intend to go through with it? how can isaac go along with it even if it doesn't end up happening even if it was a test of abraham's faith as verse 1 indicates up front well, why this test like is it just a kind of cruel a cruel episode for both abraham and isaac most importantly what are they supposed to think about god after this what kind of god are we seeing in Genesis 22? That's an absolutely key question. Hold that thought. What kind of God are we seeing in Genesis 22? And for your encouragement, if you are currently in the this just feels harrowing category, um, maybe a bit embarrassed by this passage, maybe hoping, I hope my kind of friends who aren't Christians don't ask me about this bit of the Bible. Um, Well, let me say, actually, I think this passage is not one to hide away from but to look more closely at and it is astonishing I actually this is one of the bits that i found quite troubling and um, for, for a number of years i didn't really understand what was going on didn't didn't know why was god was doing this um, but as i've been preparing this passage has has just been blowing my mind and, and my heart at the goodness of god the good generosity of our loving heavenly father Let me pray for God's help as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, the Bible. And we pray for your help now with everything else going on in life. Please help us to listen to you and so to learn to trust you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Or if you don't like surprises, there's an outline on the back of the server sheet, which will tell you where we're going. And there's a lot of information on there, but we're basically going to do two things. It's kind of a two-step morning. The first step is to work our way through Genesis. Uh, We're just going to go through the story bit by bit and, and see what point should we be picking up just from Genesis 22. Then we're going to step back and see how this story, the near sacrifice of Isaac, is pointing forward to the great story, the big story in the centre of the Bible, the actual sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the thing we're gonna see this morning, that actually this story in the very first book of the Bible, right at the beginning, is pointing to the centre of the Bible, the cross of Jesus Christ. Now the cross of Jesus is a divisive subject, isn't it, in the world today? Uh, For many, the idea that God's salvation plan might centre on a cruel Roman cross 2,000 years ago, I mean, it's just too strange to believe, or too pathetic to believe, that kind of just Jesus dying as a convicted criminal, that doesn't sound like your usual superhero rescue, the kind of saviour of the world kind of stuff. In fact, many Muslims would believe it's, it's not possible that a holy man and a prophet of God like Jesus could end up on a cruel cross, judged seemingly by God. They think there must have been some switch uh, before he got there. A righteous man would never have that fate. Indeed, even sometimes people calling themselves Christians or Christian teachers sometimes have a real reluctance to accept what the Bible says about the cross. So, for example, um, Steve Chalk, um, he once compared what happens at the cross, Jesus dying in our place, taking the punishment our sins deserved. He once infamously compared it to cosmic child abuse, sounding actually more like a modern atheist than the prophets of the Bible. But as we look closely at this story in Genesis 22, we're going to see that it is deliberately preparing the way for the cross. It's preparing the way for the day when Jesus, the Son of God, that we deserved substituted into our place, took the death that we deserved. Okay, let's get into the passage. And we'll come back to Jesus and the big story uh, later. But let's get into point one, an astonishing story at the beginning of the Bible. Um, the, the, we're going to take it in kind of four bits, A, B, C, D. But the middle is the, is the key, I think. So there's an introduction, verses one, 1 to 4, and an outro, verses 15 to 19. But, but the middle has the key point. Let's start with verses 1 to 4. Um, And right from the start, we're shocked, I think. It is an astonishing story. Just look at um, how God puts it in verse 2. He says, Abraham, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. On every level, that verse is completely shocking especially if you've been reading through Genesis to this point. I mean, it's shocking just a father contemplating that with the son. But this is, um, as is made clear, Abraham's only son. We might think, oh, hang on, you had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But by this point, Ishmael is gone, and Isaac is, is Abraham's only heir. In fact, that next phrase, your only son Isaac, reminds us of that point. See, Isaac is the one who who's been promised that all of God's promises will go through him. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Your descendants will come through that son. Yes, that's the son we're talking about. And then the most poignant phrase of all, the son whom you love. Abraham loves Isaac. God knows that Abraham loves Isaac. And so how can he be asked to go and offer him as a burnt offering? I mean, Just what is going on here? Now, it's important to to say that verse 1 flags up right up front that things might not be how they seem, as we're told that God is testing Abraham. Now, God's testing Abraham not for God to find out something. He already knows the end from the beginning. It's to teach Abraham and us something. But but what is it? what's the point of this, this test, of God seemingly asking the unthinkable? Richard Dawkins thinks he knows, he thinks it's a cruel joke. Only joking, you don't actually have to do that. That doesn't sound right, but then what is going on? And actually, this is important, it's not just by the standards of modern morality that this is a strange moment. It's by the standards of the Bible's ethics, the Bible's moral laws, this is a strange thing. So I've put some reference on the sheet. Um, The first one's actually wrong. So it's Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, not 21. Um, Deuteronomy 12, verse 31. You don't need to turn there. I'll just tell you what it says. This is where God tells his people they must not copy the religions around them when they go into Canaan, where this is happening. Um, He says this, "You, "'You shall not worship the Lord your God "'in the way that these other nations do, "'for every abominable thing that the Lord hates "'they've done for their gods.'" For, listen, they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. God hates that, that that goes on. Or Deuteronomy 18, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. In fact, because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. This is what the the nations around them were doing. This is how the false gods were asking to be served. And just as an aside, therefore, if you ever hear a voice in your head saying to do something like this, that is not coming from God. It is against the Bible's ethical teaching. It's one of the reasons God is judging the land of Canaan, that they would sacrifice their children to their gods to improve their own lives. So what is going on? Even by the Bible's ethical standards, what is going on? And you might say, oh, well, hang on, that's Deuteronomy. I mean, that's that's ages in the future. It's not now. Maybe we don't know that about God yet. But think about God's character through Genesis so far. He is so good and kind and generous. And more specifically, the very episode before this one, Genesis 21, we saw an offspring of Abraham, Ishmael, he taken into the wilderness and come to the point of death, so much so Hagar, his mum, had given up. She was just weeping. I don't want to look on the death of the boy. And God had stepped in to save him. See, the point, God doesn't let offspring of Abraham just die in the wilderness. No. And we've just heard that. And so not just by God's own ethics, the law revealed, but by his own character that we've just seen. We're thinking, what is going on here? And it's not just his ethics and his character, it's, it's also his promises. Because here's the point Isaac is the promised son. Isaac is the one who can't die, at least he's, until he's had children, because God has promised all of your children and blessings are going to come through him. It's like in the, in the family tree of, of humanity, he's picked the branch of Abraham and then he's picked the branch of Isaac. And if you saw off that branch, well, then hope for the world is gone, and God's broken his promises. See the point? If you've been reading through Genesis, this verse, it's even more shocking. (laughs) It's not just how can a father do that to a son, it's what is going on with God's promises? See, that's the issue. We need to realize for Abraham that the test is not just um, are you willing to, to put me first above your son? No, the test is will you trust my promises? when it looks impossible for me to bring them about, when it looks like the route I'm proposing doesn't make any sense? And most importantly, will you trust my promises when I would have to overcome death itself to deliver them? That's the test. Abraham, do you trust that I'm so good and so faithful and so unstoppable in my commitment to my promises that I will... Fulfill them against even the obstacle of death. Well, let's have a look at Abraham's faith next, verses 5 to 10. That's the setup, and it's got us, I think, asking all sorts of questions, wondering what's going on. Now let's look at um, what happens next. Um, Now, it's worth saying, the way this story is told, it's like it's in slow motion. It kind of cranks up the tension, and I think we are supposed to feel the tension of the story. So verse 3, we see Abraham getting up early. He's preparing the supplies. Um, I mean, in our family, any kind of packing for a trip is just horrendous. It's just awful. But this one, I mean, imagine this one. He's cutting the wood that he's planning to put his son on. I mean, imagine that. And he's going to do this three-day journey to Moriah, where God has told him to go. Three days is a long time to think about this. And verse 4, he can see the place in the distance. He lifts up his eyes and see what, sees what, where it's going to happen. I think we're tempted to read ourselves into Abraham's shoes and, and think, well, he must be having second thoughts and doubts. Actually, there's no evidence of that in this chapter. In fact, what we see, verse 5, just look at it, verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Do you see Abraham's expectation there? I and the boy will come back again to you. And there's no reason to think he's lying here. No, he's trusting. He's trusting the promise. He knows whatever happens, this cannot end in death, not permanently. God has promised. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. We've just heard that, chapter 21. The boy is going to return. Even if he has to die, God is going to raise him from the dead. He's sure the boy is coming back. That's the faith of Abraham. And we might think, well, how can he trust that? But actually, Abraham's got good reason to believe that. Just think how Isaac was born in the first place. Abraham's body was as good as dead. Sarah's body was as good as dead. Her womb was lifeless, unable to have children. And yet, God worked those miracles to bring life where there was death. And now, Abraham's able to trust God can do the impossible. And just look at Abraham's faith specifically. Just look at what happens in verse 8. Now, again, the, the, the tension has cranked up another few notches. Um, Isaac, we see, is the willing participant, verse 6, who carries the wood, um, which, just by the way, shows we shouldn't be imagining a small boy here, um, like a lad who's able to carry enough timber for a sacrifice for his aging dad. We're talking uh, teens, uh, most likely. Um, but as they set off together, um, teenage Isaac does ask this just deeply poignant question, Dad, have we forgotten something? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, what a question that is. Because as readers, we know what Abraham knows, and we're thinking, well, what's he going to say to that? And we do need to concentrate on what he says. Verse 8, this is important. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then they went, both of them, together. God will provide. That's Abraham's faith here. God will provide. Now the question is, what does he mean? When it says God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, what does Abraham mean? Is he already expecting God's going to do some kind of sub, a substitute, an animal maybe, at just the right time? No, I don't think Abraham is. In verse 10, it seems like he intends to go through as instructed. I think this could be a way of saying, well, God has provided for himself you, Isaac. After all, Isaac was the son God provided. In fact, it could literally read like that. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, i.e., my son. We just don't know. At this stage, the tension is just cranking up another notch. Abraham knows God will provide, but he doesn't know how. Will it require a resurrection? (coughs) After that answer, they both go on together. We don't actually know how fully Isaac understands what's going on or how early he realizes it. Uh, Did he pick up that clue in Abraham's answer or not? But either way, he is going willingly. He's trusting his father. He's trusting God. There's no sign of struggle. And at his age, he could easily outrun or outfight Abraham, his elderly dad, if he wanted to. But actually, they both walk together to this terrible moment. And then as the wood is laid and Isaac's bound and the knife is lifted, at just the right time, when it seemed, like with Ishmael, that all hope was gone, God intervenes. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Stop, Abraham. There is another way. Stop, Abraham. God will provide for himself the lamb, not the way you expected, but through a substitute sacrifice. That's the point, verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And listen to this language. Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Here's the key lesson of this passage. Notice what Abraham calls the place. He doesn't call the place Abraham really trusted. Now he calls the place God will provide. That's the key take-home message. God will provide a substitute sacrifice. We had that question hanging, didn't we, from verse 8. Abraham trusted God will provide, but we didn't know how. Well, well here's how. God will provide a substitute sacrifice. Someone or something to, to, to pay the price, to swap in and take this death penalty. And that is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ, where God provides a substitute for us. Jesus dying in our place. But we're not just reading that back in, now we know what happens with Jesus and Easter. No, that's the point that's being driven home here. It's driven home by the parallels of verse 8 and verse 14, we've seen that. It's driven home in that language of how explicit the swap is. Abraham took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, verse 13 It's explicit in the name of the place. It's a big deal when places get names, new names in Genesis. And here's the name, verse 14, the Lord will provide. Forever after, this place was a reminder of God providing the substitute. Fourthly, the end of verse 14, it said, to this day on the mount of the Lord it it shall be provided. This became a a phrase, a well-known phrase in Israel. God provides. Unlike the gods of Canaan, And to be honest, the idols of our culture. God is not the kind of God who takes and takes and takes. Who says, you've got to throw away your children to keep me happy or to be blessed. No. Quite the opposite. The God of the Bible is the God who provides what is needed. A substitute so that his people don't have to die. That's the key lesson. Now, we'll think about how that points to Jesus in in detail in just a moment. Um, But just before we get there, there is this outro bit, verses 15 to 19. um, And it's an amazing thing, because now this has happened, this significant moment where God provided a a substitute sacrifice and Abraham trusted God. From now on, all the other promises are guaranteed. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on, aren't God's promises always reliable? Like, what what do you mean they're guaranteed? Weren't they already uh, true? God can't lie Well, that's true. He can't lie, but we struggle to trust him. And so through Genesis, he's been giving extra reassurance that this is absolutely rock-solid guaranteed. In chapter 15, we had a covenant, like a legal ceremony, to, to prove his commitment. And now, verse 16, we've got an oath. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. And in lots of ways that little paragraph is like a greatest hit of the promises so far in Genesis. It's like now that's what I call promises, Abraham's covenant edition. And the point is, now this has happened it's guaranteed that those promises will come true. Because Abraham trusted the Lord. Because the Lord provided the substitute offering, the promises will surely come about. At which point, if you know much of what Christians believe about the cross, hopefully some lights are turning on. A one-off event. A one-off moment of substitutionary sacrifice. One death that guarantees all the promises of God to his people. Now, if we haven't quite got that point from just Genesis 22, think how the rest of the Bible goes on, because God didn't just provide this picture, this first kind of amazing picture of the lamb who dies on behalf of Abraham's offspring. He actually kept repeating the picture through the Bible. Um, So book one of the Bible, Genesis, here it is. Book two of the Bible, Exodus, How did God rescue his people from Egypt? How did he keep them safe when his judgment went across that land? By a Passover lamb. A lamb died in the place of the firstborn. In fact, the original readers of Genesis would would have been through that. They'd be like, oh, hang on, we've seen this story. We've, We've been in this story. God provided us a lamb to die so that our future didn't. That's Genesis, first book. Exodus, second book, Leviticus. Leviticus, the book about sacrifices being made by the priests on behalf of the people. Burnt offerings, animals dying that we might not have to for our sin. And it goes on and on um, through history. In fact, when the temple gets set up, when Solomon, later the king of Israel, builds the temple, do you know where he built it? If, uh, it's not, we're not going to do interaction, but <laughs> do you know where he built it? It was Moriah. Um, mount Moriah is the temple mount, which might not ring many bells to us, but uh, have a look at 22 verse 2. 20 verse 2. We probably didn't notice it, because so we so kind of seeing the, the, the shock of this, the command. But 22 verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I shall tell you. This happens where the temple's going to be built, just down the road from where Jesus is going to die. Extraordinary, isn't it? It's like God shouting with a megaphone across the whole of the Old Testament, building up to Jesus. You need God to provide, and God will provide. That's the name of the place. God will provide a substitute sacrifice. That is the way you can be set free from death. That is the way that blessing can come to all the nations through Abraham's offspring, when God provides the substitute. Now, of course, as we saw last year in Hebrews, if you were here, ultimately an animal can never take the place of us. Human rebellion against God, human wrongs to each other can never be paid for by just an animal. It's not a fair swap. And so Jesus Christ, God the Son, came as a human being to do exactly this, to be the ram who took our place, to pay the debt that we deserved. And so for our last few minutes, um, point two, which is more brief if you're worried, point two, I want (laughs) us to reflect on how this story, at the beginning of the Bible, prepares the way for the most astounding story at the center of the Bible. We're coming into the season, aren't we, where we celebrate Jesus' birth. And the reason Jesus was born was so he could step into this story. He took on human flesh, God the Son, so that he could die as our substitute. And just think about it, it was a three-day journey for Abraham to head towards this event, knowing what was ahead. For our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, this has been the plan For millennia. This is almost 2,000 years before Jesus. And actually loads of these details and the way the story is told, I think help us reflect on what it will be like when Jesus does finally come. So let's think briefly as we just apply and reflect. Let's just think through these different characters, and the kind of different elements of the story. So firstly, the ram at Moriah, the substitutionary ram that God provides How does this help us appreciate the cross of Jesus? Well, one thing I think the chapter shows really clearly is how necessary the God-provided substitute was. The significance of the moment it happened, it was just at the right moment when when there was no other hope. Isaac was helpless. Death seemed inevitable for Abraham's offspring and God stepped in to provide. One of the ironies of... um, of uh, Richard Dawkins' comment is, actually, when God interrupts, he doesn't say, only joking. Pff, we don't need a sacrifice. We don't need any death. No, actually, he provides a substitute to take that death. Same on Passover night. It wasn't that the, the Israelites had to do nothing in their houses. They'd just be kept safe. No, a death was needed. Now, I if you're new to Bible th- now, I as if you're new to Bible things, you might think, well, what, what? What's going on? Why is God so keen for death? Well, he's not. He's the giver of life. But Genesis has already established by this point that anyone who rebels and rejects God, the giver of life, does in fact deserve death. More than that, God has promised. He said, "If you um, disobey my voice, if you eat of the tree I haven't I've told you not to, you will surely die." He said that to Adam. And the, command, the promise rings on through the generations. If you reject my voice, if you live in defiance of me, you will surely die. So you got that promise, you will surely die. You've got the promise to Abraham's family, you will surely be blessed. How can they both be true? Well, God needs to provide a substitute. Isaiah 53 puts it like this much later talking about a lamb led to the slaughter, he says this, he was pierced for our transgressions. The ram shows us how much we need the cross. We need Jesus to die the death in our place. Now, if you've got more questions about that, please do talk to me or or another Christian afterwards. Um, But actually, I want us to move on because this story actually is not so much a kind of technical kind of Let's just ex- see how it works. A kind of legal, this is, someone needs to pay the death penalty and, and, and God's going to provide a substitute. No, this isn't just a technical explanation. No, I think the most astonishing feature of this chapter is seeing a father who loves his son considering giving him up. And seeing a son who trusts his father willing to follow the plan. And I do think reflecting on these things as they prepare the way for the cross is good for us to ponder. Just think about Abraham the father at the moment. A a a picture, I think, of God the father's willingness to give up his one and only son. Just think about it. No doubt Abraham really did love Isaac. Their affection, I guess, had grown over the first decade of their lives together. But God the father and God the son spent eternity in perfect loving communion. And then God was willing to give up his son to save us. God so loved the world, a world that doesn't even love him, that he gave his only son. I said earlier, Abraham took that three-day journey and he could see where it was going to happen. He could could look ahead. He had every opportunity to turn back. God the Father could see this coming from the creation of the world. If anyone is going to be saved, if anyone's going to be blessed after they've rebelled against me, it's my son who's going to have to pay. And still he continued with the rescue plan. It should give us as Christians real assurance. When Paul says in Romans 8, Robin said this earlier, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give with him, graciously give us all things? That'd be a great thing to reflect on this season, the love of the Father, the costly generosity Abraham didn't have to go with it, but go through with it because God the Father was willing to, to provide just what we need. But then it's not just the Father, uh, Abraham pointing to the Father. I think also Isaac points to, in shadow form, in kind of sketch form, he points to the willing son that Jesus proved to be. I said earlier, we, we don't know for sure exactly how much Isaac understood and how soon he understood it. But Actually, all the way through, he willingly Um, Doesn't fight against what God has said and trusts his Father. When it comes to Jesus, he knew exactly what he was walking towards. We hear him pray, don't we, in Gethsemane? Abba, Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew he was walking to his death, but he wanted to. It's actually why that language of cosmic child abuse is just such an appalling distortion of what's actually going on. Jesus is not some naive victim. He's not some vulnerable, ignorant third party. This is God the Son who knows what's going to happen. Come to absorb God's anger on our behalf. Come to take the death so we don't have to. Walking up the mountain, Jesus was carrying his cross Isaac was carrying the wood that he'd be sacrificed on. Jesus knew what was ahead. He knew there'd be no last-minute rescue. Precisely because he wanted Isaac to live. And us, if you're a Christian. Extraordinary. That's Isaac, the willing son. And finally, just this one act that secures the blessings the promises permanently. So you remember I said, said at the end in verses 15 to 19 that, that this one kind of climactic moment in Abraham's life, this, this obedient trust of God and this substitution that God provides guarantees all of God's promises. And it's exactly the same with the cross when this story is fulfilled. I'll read from Hebrews that we heard last year. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. By a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We even heard in Hebrews that once Jesus had died on the cross, there was this oath from God. You are a priest forever, I swear on my life. That's why Christian assurance or access to God doesn't go up and down with our performance. Now it's guaranteed by the substitute that God provides. That's a lot to absorb. Our time is gone. Just as we close, I want to, say, I want to speak to two different kinds of people. Um, firstly, if you are a Christian, I hope this morning your heart and your mind is, is beginning to be blown by this. It's extraordinary. That actually what, what initially seems like the horror of this story, that, that tension, that, that question of what's, what's going to happen? How is Isaac going to survive this? I hope it's turning into an awareness of God's extraordinary (laughs) generosity. Abraham didn't have to do this because God was willing to. What should Abraham and Isaac have made of God after this episode? He's the God who provides. He's the God who will substitute. And now from the other side of the cross of Christ, we can say he's the God who provides his own son for us hope if you're a Christian, this will help us reflect with more wonder as we go through the carols and Christmas season. And if you're not a Christian, um, I do want to ask what's stopping you. That would be a great thing to, to chat with someone about or think about what's stopping you becoming one. One thing this story says is that there, there is this urgent danger. Um, the wages of sin are death, says, says the Bible. We're all in danger of facing God unforgiven. And God has provided a substitute to take the debt we should have paid so that we might enjoy the life and blessing that Jesus deserved. Whereas if you've maybe just, this is the first time you're hearing about any of this, you may well have questions. I'd love to chat to you or chat to someone uh, you know who's a Christian. Um, Whereas it's a lot to absorb, but I hope we're all struck that right from the first book of the Bible, God is planning the cross and explaining the cross to us. Right from the first of the Bible God is teaching us that he will provide what did Abraham learn that day this is a God you can trust with your life this is the God who provides generously and so tonight in Matthew when Jesus says come follow me he's not leading us to death might feel hard the journey but he's not leading us there he's the God who provides life let's pray Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this astonishing story and even more for the astounding true events of Jesus' (laughs) death and resurrection that it points to. We thank you so much, Father, that you are willing to give up your only Son in love for this world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are willing to go to the cross to save many. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you would be filling our hearts with wonder and joy and thankfulness at your provision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.